0: Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FDIC. Spot Me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.
1: You got problems that you ought to
2: be concerned with
1: supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it you're a freak with a dark shameful secret but you're not the only one get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun now your healing has begun it's bad with money with gabby done gabby done here with an episode called what if you're fucked for a country that really is Welcome everybody to the second to last episode of season two of Bad With Money. Many of the topics we've covered on the show this season came from emails you sent me, which you can do anytime, by the way, at badwithmoneyatslate.com. And while those messages prompted me to want to tackle big issues like student debt, medical bills, and money in politics, perhaps the biggest theme that emerged from your emails was this overwhelming sense of helplessness. To put it bluntly, a lot of you feel like you're fucked. And listen, I know how you feel. I'm in a much better place than I used to be, but I will never forget the horrible feeling of waking up every morning and being trapped under a mountain. I hope that one of the things you've taken away from this show is the fact that there are ways out from under the mountain, and in a lot of cases, just talking about the fact that the mountain exists is the first and most important step. On today's episode, though, we're going to talk about some situations where it really is possible to get trapped, specifically... Freelancing, identity theft, mental illness, and the criminal justice system. These aren't the only bottomless pits you can fall into, of course, but they're the ones that I hear from listeners about most frequently. And in a season where we've tried to focus a little bit more on practical solutions, I think it's important to stop and remember that those don't exist for everyone. So first up, we're going to meet Manjula Martin, an author and editor who's braved the freelance writing wilderness and lived to tell the tale. She wrote a book called Scratch, Writers, Money, and the Art of Making a Living, and wants to make sure future freelancers in all areas don't have it as rough as she and so many others have.
3: I started freelancing because I couldn't find a day job Um, in 2008, 2009, around the time of the Great Recession. No jobs, particularly not in nonprofit copywriting, which had been my day job before I went to school. I had had a like untraditional educational background. So I didn't graduate from college the first time around. And I I dropped out and moved to New York and did writerly things and other things and worked in nightclubs and that whole thing. And then lived life, lived my life, experienced the world. And so I had coffee with a very fancy wise, uh, museum director who I knew, who I was hoping would hire me. Um, and she was like, yeah, I can't hire you. You should just freelance. Yeah. And something sort of clicked and I was like, okay, I can do that. (laughs) And so I did. Um, it wasn't really a, a decision that I made very wisely. I didn't have any money saved up. It was really stupid actually now that I look back on it, but it was sort of a necessity. Like I couldn't get a job. So I got multiple jobs, you know?
1: What, um, yeah, what are the things that you're giving up? Uh, like you give up, uh, insurance, you give up a guaranteed paycheck. I used to freelance, uh, forever and still kind of show business is constant freelancing. True. I would go back and forth constantly in New York, like between day jobs and freelancing. Cause I would get bored at the day job. And then I would be like, I, I would, it was almost like, how people describe childbirth where you're like, you forget how terrible it was. Yeah. And then you're like, I, I miss freelancing. And then you go back and then you're like, no, this was a bad idea. Is there some sort um, of like freelancing hormone that takes over? <laughs> yeah. You get like wanderlust and you're like, I'll freelance. And then you're like, this is a nightmare. Cause it was a lot of like, tra- in terms of guaranteed paycheck, it was a lot of just like trying to track people down to pay you.
3: Yeah. Not having a guaranteed paycheck is one thing. Not knowing when you're going to get paid for a job that you've already done is like a whole other thing. Um,
1: right. It sucks.
3: Yeah. I always tell people to find out who the AR people, like the, the accounts payable and receivable people are, and like make friends with them.
1: <laughs> rather than – you mean rather than emailing the editor? Just yeah. go directly to that person and be like, help. I'm not getting – because one time it yeah. took a magazine a year to pay me.
3: Yeah. No, that's and that's so common. I mean, that's, you know, I run this website who pays writers. And it's like, you know, that's sort of why that website started in in some ways is because so many people had this experience that they wanted to sort of like get together and share the info.
1: Yeah, there was some blowback, like your your website, um, who pays writers. I remember when some people found out which publications didn't pay writers, there was like, those publications were getting some shit for that.
3: Yeah, Um, because it turns out that once you guys like start sharing information, you know, it's harder to disguise when people are not behaving well.
1: Um, Exactly. Yeah, no. Yeah. You know, if
3: there's someone in your group of friends who's a crappy person to the people they date, eventually some the people they date are going to start being like, hey, you know, like, that person was crappy to me
1: too. Hey, me too. Like, maybe none of us should fuck them, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. And by that, you mean don't write for their publication. Exactly. <laughs> don't fuck them with words. Um, yes. <laughs> no, yeah. It's interesting to me that you started freelancing from not being able to find a job because I think this episode is sort of about being screwed. And I think a lot of people feel like they can't find a job. Like right now, people that are unemployed or they just got fired or they can't find a job um, and they're considering freelancing. Would you recommend that or like it worked for you? You know,
3: look, if you need money and work, like take whatever job you can get you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if you're at that point where you're screwed and you've been fired and someone's like, Hey, do you want to, um, do this like contract job for a little while? That's only a few hours a week, but you'll get a little bit of money. Like say yes, you know? Um, yeah. I and mean, I think that like, particularly among creative professionals, there's this sort of romance around the type of work you do. Like, Oh, I want to have sort of like the perfect situation. I want to be in author, and I want to only write for certain magazines and that sort of thing. And I think that's actually like, indicative of a really privileged attitude, because that sort of presumes that one can choose what is one what one is doing for work. Um, mm-hmm. And the reality is that like, most people just have to like pay the rent, and you should take whatever job you can get. <laughs> um, and yeah, if that's five different jobs at the same time, do that start thinking about what you want to do in the long term and try to build towards something that's maybe like, you know, more towards what you want to do. But in the meantime, like, yeah, get paid, take the job.
1: In the last couple of years, I realized how many of my friends do transcription on the side um, as like a side job. And I didn't realize that. Cause I would always kind of be like, where are these people? Like, I know they have like little jobs, but like, where are they getting their money from? And then it like came out like, Oh, like, you know that a bunch of us do transcription, right? And I had, had no idea. Wow. And like, I think it's just, there's this shame because like a lot of people are doing these little side jobs and they, it, it's viewed as like, oh, they do it as a side hustle from their day job. But some people are doing like a bunch of them just at to make a day job. Does that make yeah. sense?
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, you'll find that even the people who you look at and think like, oh, they have a perfect career. They're actually still hustling.
1: <laughs> um, yeah this what's the smartest thing that someone just starting out in a career that seems likely to be primarily freelance can do to protect themselves and what like just from the book and from your website and like what are the biggest mistakes maybe people make first of all don't work for free it's so hard because so many websites ask you to work for free and then people are like well I have to work for free in order to get the byline I know I thought that
3: yeah and we've all done it but I think that like if you're going into it saying like I'm going to be a freelance writer, for example, like that's your job. So don't work for free. Like if you're like, oh, my friend runs a website and he wants me to publish an essay on it and I think that would be fun. That's great. Fine. You don't need to get paid for that. But like if someone's yeah. making money off of your work, make sure that you're also making money off of your work. More practically speaking, the number one thing that I would recommend for someone embarking on a freelance career is to well there's a few things one learn about contracts have contracts read your contracts understand your contracts number Mm. two figure out what you're going to do about taxes before like March you know 29th (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah like I didn't know anything about freelance taxes the first couple years that I did it and You know, I just sort of skated through and ended up owing a lot of money, but also like didn't keep good records. And I'm not a record keeping person. Like I hate Excel. I don't do spreadsheets. I'm like not, that's not how my brain works, but it's not that hard to figure out a system for yourself where you can like track your expenses. And then, know. you know, I, I know that I can't do my own taxes cause I hate it. So I pay someone to two to $300 every year to do my taxes for me. And so I know that I'm going to need to make that extra 300 bucks every year, you know, which you can write off by the way. So yeah, I think learning about taxes, just acknowledging the reality of taxes is huge. You know, maybe you're not in a financial situation where you can sock away 50% of your 1099 paycheck. Like, I've never done that in my life. Who are we kidding? Even if you can't sock away some of that paycheck, like just understanding that like you're going to need to deal with that in April every year and figuring out a way to maybe pay some quarterly tax estimates is going to just rock your world.
1: I know I buried my head in the sand so much. I was like, I don't want to deal with any of this. (laughs) Yeah. And then it was like such a nightmare.
3: And then I would have just one more piece of advice, which is negotiate. I have a personal rule, which is that whenever anyone offers me, I'm probably blowing it by saying this publicly, but whenever anyone offers me a job and they offer me a certain amount of money, I've promised myself that I'm always going to come back and ask for more even if it's just a little bit more, I'm not going to do it sort of in an unwarranted fashion. Like there are reasons to ask for more. Um, but for me, I have a really hard time, like, because I was struggling and poor for a really long time, whenever anyone offers me money, I'm like, okay, great. That sounds perfect. Done. I'll take it. You know, <laughs> because you're like, okay, I don't want to lose this deal. Like I need this job, but coming back and saying like, mm, how about this much more because, you know, you don't even really have to say because at first, but like you can say, how about this much more? Or I was thinking it might be more like this kind of rate. And then if they instantly say yes to whatever you've asked for, you know that next time you have to ask for
1: more than that. What are the biggest mistakes that people make when freelancing?
3: Oh, when you're going into a job, make sure that you know how the job Ends, by which I mean make sure you know and decide upon what triggers your paycheck, basically. <laughs> like if you're working oh. on a, a writing and then you're like, okay, it's done. And then the people are like, okay, great. Could you do some rewrites? And you're like, sure. And then you do the rewrites and then you send it back and you're like, okay, it's done. And they're like, okay, great. I mean, that can go on forever, first of all. But also, like, you can write into a contract payment is due upon delivery of the Second revision, or whatever <laughs> you know, like just making sure that you know, like, when is the moment when you get to send that invoice?
1: Does uh sending in the first draft trigger the payment? Does publication trigger the payment? Yeah, definitely. I remember not asking about that. Yeah,
3: so many people I know who, who freelance it's their whole life and they just they burn out, you know, like they run themselves into the ground. Uh, just yeah and all the time and I think that that can be a mistake and I think that it's important to sort of be aware of how much you're working and be aware of your own health and your own mental state um, and don't be hard on yourself don't be too hard on yourself
1: coming up my friend's mom calls me an internet celebrity and I don't correct her also we talk about identity theft stay tuned Next week, you're going to hear from the wonderful writer and comedian Erin Judge on our season finale, which is called Queering Money. Get ready. But this week, we're going to hear from Erin's mom, Catherine McCauley, about
4: identity theft, which can cost
1: you big time financially and emotionally.
4: Okay. My name is Catherine McCauley. And uh, for 15 years, I was the director of student legal services at the University of North Texas in Denton. Um, As the Director of Student Legal Services. I advised and I represented students, college students, who were having legal problems and sometimes money problems too. Uh,
1: Your daughter, who I think is going to be in a future episode, uh, is a friend of mine, and uh, she hit me up and was like, "You have to talk about identity theft with my mom." Why? Why did she? Why do you think she said that?
4: Well, probably because in the time that I was working at UNT, I did have to advise a number of students Mm. who unfortunately were victims of identity theft. And I had to guide them through the process. And of course, you know, over the, over the course of 15 years, uh, things were still being worked out as far as how to handle identity theft. 15 years ago, they weren't very good at it. And by they, I mean, credit card companies, police departments, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, credit reporting agencies as well. So, I had to assist a lot of students. So can, let's go back. What is um, identity theft? Okay. Identity theft can take various forms. It can happen as simply as somebody using your credit card, or it could be as significant as somebody assuming your entire identity mm-hmm. and opening up credit lines unbeknownst to you by using your social security number, by using um, your address, your home phone number, um sometimes, too, it can occur when they file a tax return in your name and get a refund. Oh, my God. Before you even file your taxes. That's happened. Wow. One of the most egregious yeah. was perpetrated by Wells Fargo. Oh, what do you mean? Well, Wells Fargo was giving bonuses to their um, employees who mm-hmm. opened up credit lines for people. And so one of the things they did was they opened up credit lines for people that never requested it. Oh, right. And they were fined by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau $100 million for for doing that type of work. And that will ruin people's credit. Not necessarily. But of course, you know, you have more inquiries on your credit report. Mm -hmm. It does affect your credit score. Mm -hmm. And so that could have created problems for people. But um, you have that instance where you have a major bank doing something like that. Then you also might have a situation where there is a a whole credit card ring Mm -hmm. that's operating. And I think recently in L.A. they busted one just within the last week. Really? Yes. They were making counterfeit credit cards.
1: It just seems like maybe the most selfish thing you could do.
4: (laughs) yeah. It, it it's easy too. It it's seen as a victimless crime because there are protections for consumers. Yeah, if a credit card's been opened in your name and you don't realize it, and it's been charging, uh, once you do find out, you have no liability for that.
1: Okay, so it's mo- I mean, because I've heard people say that like you can't really come back from hardcore identity theft.
4: Well. The real problem is not so much monetary for people who are victims. It's more the incredible problems that come about as a result. Mm -hmm. The problems getting more credit, the problem cleaning up your credit report. Mm -hmm. Um, I myself have been a victim. Really? Can you talk what happened? Can you tell that story? It was a long time ago. It was when identity theft was probably in its genesis to some degree. Um, I had, it's so funny because I was working at a law firm that was a civil law firm, not a criminal one. And my boss, who was, of course, a lawyer, and I was a baby lawyer, I was a newbie. Yeah. Um, he encouraged us to, um, work on a criminal case that he had been assigned randomly by the federal court. Mm -hmm. And it was a simple case, but, um... I was very excited because I <laughs> loved criminal law at the time. And so I gathered all these possible witnesses and we had a sort of a mini trial, a hearing, but right, we had to call yeah. witnesses. And I didn't realize it, but one of these witnesses who was not on the good side of the law right. must have gotten a deposit ticket out of my checkbook <gasps> because I knew I was not missing a check. And using that deposit ticket, they were able to go to a drive through get a phony check from a company and deposit it into my account let's say a 500 dollar check yeah and withdraw 300 oh and they kept doing this and doing this until they drained <sighs> my bank account oh my god did you know who it was no it was one of his criminal
1: Buddies. friends. oh my god i know <laughs> and you and you just don't like think that that would have I mean people are so I feel like so loosey-goosey with information now I mean I don't know what year that was
4: that was quite a long time ago I want to say in the 1990s yeah this now it's like I don't even think of about. i like i'll I'm, i
1: feel like people are I, I mean it's like one of those things where when the internet first came out and my parents were like don't tell anyone your name don't do any of it and now everyone has like twitter accounts with their real names and like everyone's just like f- giving information freely um i, I feel like n- yeah i feel like now it'd be so easy just to get that information they wouldn't even have to steal it from your purse
4: yeah banks have become smarter about it too yeah Um, But, of course, they had created a phony driver's license with my name on it. Um, But banks have become smarter. And, uh, unfortunately, when I realized it, I had bounced a bunch of checks. Right. People didn't want to deal with me anymore as far as writing checks were concerned. I had to get affidavits from the bank VPs and, and try to clean that up. So I didn't lose any money. Yeah. But it was really a big hassle you
1: uh, lose credibility and it's stressful and it's probably like emotional and I, I know a friend of mine dealt with an identity theft situation involving a rental car where someone checked took out a rental car in her name and that was like just like devastating. Like it was just, you try, you're trying to, it feels almost like gaslighting. Like you're trying to convince someone that this is the real you and that other person isn't you. Yeah. And that's like so draining and like a thing you they don't think you would ever have to do is one of those like horror movie things of like, who's the real one? Who do I shoot? You know? <laughs>
4: Yes, yeah. It can be very stressful, very demoralizing, and it's hard to navigate. So I would kind of be a hand-holding type of person to walk somebody through it. The um, websites that can help you, though, have gotten so much better over the years. It's incredible. Like which ones? Um, The FTC, Federal Trade Commission, is the um, entity, the agency that provides you with the ID or identity fraud affidavit Mm -hmm. that most credit reporting agencies and credit card companies want to receive. Mm -hmm. It's just something that you get notarized. But I went on that website recently, and they now have an interactive way of filing a fraud report. Oh. And it's wonderful. It's quicker. It's quicker. It it actually isolates what kind of fraud occurred and so it walks you through all the steps and then you can print out a report and it makes it much, much easier. So what would you advise? So let's
1: say someone came to you a young person and was like, I I think I've been identity thefted.
4: What what are the <laughs> what are the steps? Okay, well first I'd find out how do you think what what, what makes you think this mm-hmm. has happened. And the first thing I would want them to do is get their credit report. Mm. And there are three major credit reporting agencies that have that information, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. Mm -hmm. And you can get free credit reports from all three of them. Um, And you identify where exactly is the source of this theft. Then you put a fraud alert with one of those reporting agencies. And once you do it with one, it applies to all. Mm -hmm. And then you notify the credit card company. You call them, and then you send them a letter and say, this was not opened by me, or someone has my credit card information. Mm-hmm. And they're really good at stopping everything and, and taking care of it and taking it off your credit report.
1: But, like, does it, if they put a pause on all that stuff, like your automatic payments to, like, Hulu or, like, to other stuff, they just stop, I assume. You have to, like, get a new do a new credit card to that, or...?
4: Well, they course, shut everything down. If it's well, if it's a matter of issuing you a new credit card, mm-hmm. then they simply transfer it over. Yeah. To the other credit cards, so you don't have to redo all of your information with yeah. all these other companies that are automatically charging. Um, I'm bank and debit cards worry me more. You know, banking accounts and mm-hmm. debit cards worry me more than credit card charges, um, and that's because. If you're not vigilant, you can possibly have unlimited liability when it comes to your bank account. But credit cards, there's a limit. There's a credit $50 limit. limit. Right. There's a $50 limit as to what you're responsible for. Um, the problem comes up sometimes when credit reporting agencies or credit card companies or creditors want a police statement, a police oh, report. Oh, yeah. Think about you know, somebody wanted, and your mind doesn't work that way, but if somebody wanted to rip off a credit card company. <laughs> I'm could, too good, you guys. <laughs> You're too nice. What a pure angel. <laughs> <laughs> but if they wanted to, you could get together with a friend and say, all right, here's my credit card. Go to town. Just keep charging. You know my zip code, because mm-hmm. that's really all they ask. Right. You know, my zip code, just go to town, buy a whole bunch of stuff, go shopping at Best Buy, Target, whatever. And then you call and you report that your credit card was Mm -hmm. stolen. Well, the banks will want to know, have you filed a, a police report on this? Because it is theft. Right. And if you don't, then, you know, there's the assumption perhaps that you've finagled this and you've you've conspired to uh, rip off the credit card company. But there's like other types of identity theft that are like all encompassing.
1: Aren't there like ones where it's not just credit card and bank stuff but they just like take your social security number and all your like the ones where you just hear about these horror stories about people who just like cannot get
4: their life back? Well once somebody has your social security number mm-hmm. that's very difficult because even though you may stop some identity theft from happening or close out accounts. Yeah. You never know down the line how they might use it elsewhere. Will they use it to get an employment somewhere? Right. Will they use it to get a personal loan someplace? Right. And I don't know the extent of the frequency of that, but if something like that happens, if it's really egregious, and I mean really bad. Yeah you can go to the social security administration and bring all your documentation and ask them to assign you a new social security number. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, that is a really tough hurdle. Yeah. Well, even my friend, even the whole
1: thing with um, enterprise got sorted out, but she still is blacklisted from enterprise. Like they won't rent to her because they just don't know if it's really her or not. Well, That doesn't sound right. (laughs) It's just crazy. Like, I don't know. You hear all these things like, I guess it could even be like the modern urban legend where it's like, I heard that if they get your social security number, then you have to move to like Guam and they, you know what I mean? Like.
4: Oh yeah. Well, and you know, there are commercial entities that kind of play upon that. How scary it is. Those commercials. Yeah. Oh yeah. LifeLock and and companies like that. Um, I know. My brother said to me at one point, um, "Oh, I have LifeLock, and it's two to five million dollars of protection." And I said, "You will never need that kind <laughs> of protection because if you are a, a conscious human being, you're never going to lose a whole lot of money God, with identity theft." They've really just
1: commercialized
4: the fear. Yes, exactly.
1: So the thing, oh God! So it's it's the thing itself is bad, and then there's also like. Commercializing on and capitalizing on the fear of that thing to sell more products yes it's really not not a hard thing, but people think it's hard, so they get really scared i would I would be terrified if the- oh sure <laughs> I'm very paranoid person so well- you're a you're a celebrity, so I would oh, say. Oh, thank you so much. If we could just have everyone come on this show and say that I'm a celebrity, I will really appreciate it.
4: I think you need to take extra steps Thanks. just to make sure that you protect yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I I on the other hand, it doesn't. I don't I don't feel that anybody's particularly concerned about where my address is or yeah anything like that.
1: I just, like, the fear and the, the, like, invasion is such a big thing. Like, I had someone hack my Snapchat, and I was scared for, like, a day. (laughs) And that's, like, not even anything, like,
4: real. Well, I think, like, the worst ID theft situations that I've seen have been when somebody, either a sibling, Mm -hmm. and this has happened, or a friend, tells a police officer, I'm Susie Jones. Right. When she's not. And... You know, because sometimes people don't have their driver's license with them. Right. Um, or sometimes, I know one instance, somebody borrowed a driver's license from somebody and was stopped by the police. And so what happens is the person received a citation for whatever driving infraction. And right. then on top of that, you know, failure to have a Texas, uh, it was in Texas, a Texas yeah. driver's license. And then... No court appearance. They just blow off court, blow off the ticket. Because it's not them. Right. Oh, God. And, and so all of a sudden there's a warrant out for their arrest. Oh, my God. So straightening that out, it, it takes time. But fortunately, again, eventually the bureaucracy catches up. Yeah. To the current crime du jour. What are the protections
1: now? Like what are the laws? What does the federal government do? Like how does it? Yeah. How does it like um, how does it catch up?
4: Well, in the case of mistaken identity, as far as in something like a moving violation, the district attorney's office typically has a process for which you can go into them with your proper identification and explain the situation, fill out an affidavit and mm-hmm. they'll drop the charges um, as far as the federal government, you know, there are laws, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is one, and um, to protect you against misbehaving debt collectors who refuse to believe you when you say, <laughs> that wasn't my charge. Yeah. There are laws uh, along that line, those lines, too. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act is another federal law. They're allowed to make one call to your place of work, of business. They're not allowed to say what they're calling about. Oh, God. Okay. They can't. They're not allowed to do that. Um, If you tell them when they call your place of business that I'm not allowed to accept these kinds of calls, do not call me at work Mm -hmm. again, and they call you again, you can get a lawyer and go after them. Yeah. It all just seems like so much um, emotional energy. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It is. And that's what terrifies people, I think, more than the financial sometimes, mm-hmm. is the psychic energy, the the guilt for something you didn't do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also shame of being like, I should have protected myself more. Oh, I can't
4: believe I was a victim of this thing. I'm a pawn. I'm a rube. You know, I'm i I'm a pretty educated person and I was a victim. So, oh, yeah.
1: It's not real. Yes. It's
4: just like yes. perceived in your head. Of course.
1: That's why people who get LifeLock and stuff like that are like, oh, I'm good. I'm protecting myself. And it's like, okay. But there
4: are many ways that people can protect themselves. Like what? Well, you can get a credit report for free. And there are places that are easily accessible. Annualcreditreport.com is a website that was set up due to a federal law that says you have to allow people to get free copies of their credit report every 12 months. Mm-hmm. So all three bureaus can be accessed, TransUnion, Experian, Equifax, through annualcreditreport.com. You can also go to marketing websites like Credit Karma is one. Um, it doesn't charge you to get access to your credit reports and your credit score. Mm-hmm. Um, it does want to market to you. You know, It will show you credit card offers right, in yeah. exchange for that. So you can always check your credit score and your credit reports. And um, if you have any problems, there are websites that can talk you and walk you through it. My personal favorite is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is cfpb.gov. That was established in 2008. Mm-hmm. by It was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren.
1: Yay! Yay, Elizabeth
4: Warren. (laughs) And um, it was up and running by 2011. Mm -hmm. And in that time, it's the entity that fined Wells Fargo $100 million, what they did. Wow. And um, they have, since 2011, returned $12 billion to about 29 million Americans. Oh, my God. So, So they are really kicking it. It's so crazy that people think of it as a victimless crime when it's really not. No, they, like, you, like we were discussing, there is the um, psychic toll mm-hmm. and the time that it takes from your life to straighten things out. And,
1: I, and even though so many people are victims of it, it's, it seems like this very shameful, like I don't know that many people talk about it.
4: Yeah, it. I, I can see where shame can come in if yeah. you haven't safeguarded your passwords or something like that or your
1: PIN. Oh, there's this very condescending like, you know, cybersecurity community that's like, well, your password has to be a f- whole sentence and it has to be something no one would ever think of. And like all these things that like fine, great, cool, but like they look upon the average person as like with such condescension and i i hate how they address things like their their advice is good but whenever i read it i'm like oh you're such a dick like do you know <laughs> what i mean anyway um do you have a password manager uh i have my well i've felt i listen to the dicks and i have like a full sentence password <laughs> they got me
4: <laughs> no but i mean do, do you use the same password more than one website Mm, it changes. It. I change it a little. Okay. Yeah. And you know, when I talk about like a password manager, it's this website where you can create your unique passwords mm-hmm. and store them. I, yeah. I think that that's the best protection you can have. Yeah.
1: And like two-step verification on stuff. Absolutely. and Yeah, definitely. that The two-step verification, um, speaking as an in internet celebrity, people try to hack me all the time. And uh, so I'll get like wake up to emails that are just like all the sort of confirmation emails. Like, did you request your password, blah, 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 from like every website? And I'll be like, oh, last night someone really went to town, but they didn't uh, get in because I had two-step and it was going to my phone. Good. Um, but I'll just be like, oh, someone really had a night last night, huh? Well, too bad they didn't get in. Um, that's, that's terrible that you have to go through that. Oh, thank you. Uh, I think it's a lot of anti-feminists who are mad at me for being a lady is my guess. Um, mm. or but,
4: or Ivanka fans.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're really coming for me after last week. <laughs> I've pissed them off. Um, so, uh, you have so many
4: notes here, which is very adorable. Uh, what is the choice act? Oh, okay. Well, I, like I said, I'm a big fan of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Unfortunately, um, Congress never liked it. Not, not the, Actually, the Republicans never liked it. And so they're finding different ways to try to, to um, neuter it oh. if possible. And one of the ways is by... Um, Making the Choice Act, which is something that's sitting in the House of Representatives right now, is an attempt to create instead of one director, which we now have, is to create a panel of five. Why? And, well, it's kind of to, to to kind of water down the powers. Oh. If you have a panel of five and let's say three Republicans, two Democrats, oh. which switches maybe if um, the Democrats take control of Congress, then it would be three Democrats, two Republicans. But it, it does have this tendency to water down the effects of an agency like this.
1: Why would they
4: want that? Why do the
1: Republicans want that?
4: Um, well, the CFPB was created as part of the Dodd-Frank Act, Oh, I see. And so transparency. They don't want the transparency. They don't. They consider it too much regulation. And that's another way of saying we don't want you to look too closely. <laughs> and, yeah. So Funds. Yeah. That, ever since this agency started, there's been attempts to chip away. But Obama was really smart about this one because it's not funded by Congress. It's oh. funded by the Federal Reserve Bank. Oh, so Congress has to jump through a number of hoops to change things. Good. And interesting. That's a good thing. If you're a victim of identity theft, if you see that somebody's been charging something against your accounts, just take a deep breath, mm-hmm. call your credit card company, get online at one of the places that I've mentioned here, and work methodically through it. The emotional costs of identity theft are a perfect segue to
1: our next conversation, which is about mental health. This is a topic that I've heard from so, so many of you about, and as I've alluded to in past episodes of the show, the poisonous mix of money and mental health issues is something I have personal experience with. I discuss that and a lot more with Julie Fast, a writer and educator with bipolar disorder, who has dedicated her life to helping people like us accept the reality of our situations and teach the people around
2: us how to help. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 31, but my symptoms started at 15. And I remember when I was diagnosed, they put me on all kinds of medications and said, here's what you need to do to manage the illness. And it didn't work for me. So I went into to my psychiatrist and I said, what am I going to do? The meds aren't working very well and I'm gaining lots of weight and I don't know what to do. So he goes, I don't know. And there weren't many books on the market. So I sat down and I wrote a treatment plan. And that was in 1998. And that's the plan that I use and the plan that I teach and that's in all my books. So I started out as a writer and then started a web page in 2002, sort of at the perfect time to do a webpage, had the first bipolar blog, et cetera, and moved from there. I should say I'm not anti-medication at all for bipolar, but you have to have a managed plan where you have some meds, lifestyle changes, trigger management, all that kind of stuff. So my life has to revolve around managing this illness. And I have a pretty darn good life. But bipolar is my focus, and that's what I do.
1: That's awesome. So how would you describe bipolar disorder to someone who has heard the phrase but doesn't know much about the actual illness?
2: Bipolar disorder is a mood disorder. So there's four main types of psychiatric disorders if we're going to talk about diagnosing. Mm -hmm. You have mood disorders, which only encompass depression, which is called unipolar depression, and bipolar then you have anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders, such as schizophrenia, and personality disorders, such as borderline. Bipolar disorder is a mood disorder that has two main mood swings, depression and mania. And most people understand depression. You know, they've had low days and they understand weepiness and sadness. Mania is really hard for people to understand. And that's our elevated mood. And we can either be happy with it, called mm-hmm. euphoric mania, or... Or we get angry and sort of mean and nasty and slightly depressed with our raised energy. And that's called dysphoric mania. Mm-hmm. comes with a lot of sleep problems. I call bipolar disorder the garbage pail illness because, believe it or not, people with bipolar disorder have the symptoms from all four of the main psychiatric categories. So we have depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. mania, psychosis, irritation and anger, focus problems. We have OCD when we're sick. But the most important thing to remember about bipolar is that it's genetic, Mm -hmm. runs in families. It's not a personal failing. It's not from trauma. And also, it's episodic. So that means most of the people you meet with bipolar disorder will have long periods of time when they're stable. And that's why we get called crazy and you can't control yourself and what's wrong with you until we're diagnosed. Because we'll go through periods of stability. Then we get depressed. Then we're stable. Then we're manic. So a diagnosis is very important. So it's a mood disorder.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Has bipolar disorder disrupted any opportunities in your life? Uh, this, uh, this <laughs> you know, I know that sounds yeah. like a very obvious question, but this episode of the show is sort of about when you feel as though you are screwed in the larger sense, like when financial advice or job advice wouldn't really apply to you because you feel like you have this big outstanding thing. So mental illness is one part of it. So that's why I ask that.
2: It's a fantastic question. Yes, I'm screwed by bipolar disorder. (laughs) Everything that I want to do in life, you know, being on Broadway or traveling the world or writing a novel or doing my own radio show, et cetera, is always tempered by how sick the bipolar becomes because it's really bipolar. It's not me. My life is actually great. So I have learned to live and work within bipolar disorder. It affects everything that I do. But I've learned to work around that keep myself alive, keep myself out of the hospital, manage the illness and create a life I can be proud of. But everything for me is about managing the bipolar.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also created opportunities in a weird way. Like you found a sort of creative way to turn that into your job.
2: It's true, but you know, I've, I already was writing. I already was creating systems. Like when I was an ESL teacher, I made a system for teaching ESL better. Mm -hmm. So when I found out I had bipolar, I sort of took my system kind of brain and said, there has to be a better way. (laughs) And I learned and taught myself to do that. Then when the web, I was my ex who also had bipolar, was a programmer. So when the internet took off, we were in Tokyo at the time. We're like, let's build a website. So you take your skills that you already have when you have a mental health disorder and you have to use those to support yourself. So we might not, I might not be able to go work at a large corporation or run a huge business, but I can take the skills that I have and turn them into business. And the Internet's made that possible for a lot of us.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people with disabilities and, and who are neuroatypical have been really benefited by the Internet and working online.
2: And how do you monetize it, though? I know. That's the biggest thing, right? I know. How, with everything so, being so free how do you monetize it? And I I think about that all of the time because it is okay to make money off of working and talking about mental health. Of course. It's no different than talking about heart disease. I want to support people to make a living as bloggers and writers and podcasters in the mental health world.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I found you because I had Googled bipolar disorder and money uh, because you wrote this a lot about that. So can we talk about Mm -hmm. like the financial aspects of bipolar disorder and the way it affects your relationship to money and like what that article was about.
2: I've written a bit about this. I also want to mention there's a person who's named Carrie Martin and she runs something as an organization for the LBGTQ community called Hope Exchange. And she does a lot of research on this topic. So people with bipolar disorder who are marginalized, what is our economic, what does it look like? Mm -hmm. And the truth is if we don't get a good management plan, it's dismal because it's hard for us to deal with our sleep problems, our mood issues, weight gain from medications, having to go to the hospital. So the more we can manage this illness, the better we can work. So that's step number 1. Mm-hmm. The next thing is is that well, I can't believe it when people write me and say, "How dare you make money off of mentally ill people?" And I'm like, "But how am I going to do my work if I don't generously support myself?" so that I'm able-bodied and stable enough to help other people. So there's an idea out there that making money off an illness or off a cause is like, it's like it's a dirty word. But you're not, you're you're
1: making money off um, education and writing.
2: That's exactly, I totally agree with you. So anybody out there who wants to do a podcast, let's say you've got schizophrenia or you've got anxiety or you want to talk about PTSD or being trans and the depression in the trans community, do it and don't be ashamed to monetize that thing. Right. It's no different than big business making money. The shame around the mental health world is pretty, you know, the stigma already. Then when someone does well and makes money off it, so the article you're talking about is, I'm a mental health professional and I make a good living Mm -hmm. because- darn it. I'm going to take my business mind, combine it with my bipolar mind and make a darn good living. It's hard. I will give back to my community, but I'm not going to be ashamed for success. It took me a long time to get here. That's for sure to feel that way.
1: I've experienced uh, some aspects of mania and stuff. And you think that that's what makes you productive. Like it's almost like this Mm -hmm. weird superpower where like all, you know, bang out 60 pages of a script in three days, but I'm also not sleeping. But like, so yeah, I don't know. There's exactly. this weird thing of like, oh, well, you're you're benefiting from, your work is benefiting from you being, I, there's a romanticization of that, of like your work benefits from you being a little
2: crazy. No question. So you experience mania? Yeah. If you experience mania, you know the truth of mania. What goes up must come down. Right. So I can outline a book when I'm manic. I can meet any guy I want when I'm manic. I can fly around the world when I'm manic. But what people don't see is the six months that I'm sick afterwards. It's not worth it. I do a lot of writing about the trade-off of, for example, hypersexuality with mania is a huge topic. We get so sexual during euphoric mania, we can literally sleep with anyone, anyone we want. We're shining. Our eyes are bright. We will literally walk up to the most gorgeous person we see and go, hey, I'm Julie. Let's hook up. And they almost always say yes because we are dynamos. Then you get in a relationship with that person and they have to wake up next to the depressed person.
1: Right. Yeah. That's the
2: reality of that. Right.
1: Yeah. So money's the same way.
2: Yeah. Money's the same way. I've learned that I had to teach myself, Gabby, this was so hard. Mania is not glamorous mm-hmm. i don't allow mania in my life it took me many 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 years and i did it believe it or not by deciding to try celibacy for a couple years changed my life i couldn't control my hypersexuality or my spending so i got rid of all credit cards and went cash only and stopped internet dating and sleeping around and doing everything that i loved to do when i was manic and it just sort of showed me a different world what a relationship looks like versus a manic relationship What managing and I still have money issues, but management. Can you talk a bit more about like Mm -hmm. what specifically you did? Cash only changed my life because when you have mania or any kind of spending problem, plastic doesn't give you that extra step of I just paid $15 for a hamburger (laughs) because you're not thinking. Right. Right. So you're just handing over a card. If you put, let's say, try this, and I, this is how I sort of worked on my, and by the way, I'm not perfect at this, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. I do not do a lot of manic spending anymore. I've cut it by almost 90%. Mm-hmm. If you've got singles, let's say dollar bills, try this once. Put a hundred, get a hundred single bills, and just see how much money you spend on the day by paying with one dollar bills. Mm-hmm. And you'll realize that your Frappuccino is five freaking dollars. And then you'll realize that your lunch, especially if you had a drink with it, is $30.
1: Just seeing the money, you're saying? Seeing the cash? Seeing the cash.
2: Changed my life. Literally changed my life to see the cash.
1: Yeah. How long were you cash only?
2: Oh, I do it off and on. So like just recently, I went through a period of mania where I wasn't doing well. So put up my credit cards and got out the cash.
1: I would always think like, what if I have an emergency and I need a credit card or something like that?
2: Well, you have to, you're, you know, you're, it's not like I've thrown out my card. It's sitting in my house, right? So oh yeah. You just, it's amazing it though, how, especially if you've got a really busy life, you can literally spend a hundred dollars on just junk throughout the day. Yeah. Uber, food, happy hour, hanging out with friends, buying a book on Amazon. Oh, I need something for my yard. And if you're slightly manic, Oh, that Internet spending will kill you. That's another thing. If you're serious about this, don't have credit cards on your Internet sites where you shop. Don't put automatic cards on there. Mm -hmm. Make it so you have to enter your card each time. Anybody who's in love with someone who has bipolar disorder, sometimes if you've got college funds or IRAs, don't have the person's name on them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff we have to do to protect ourselves from ourselves. And as partners and parents, protect the people who have the bipolar as well.
1: So what were you spending on? What were you doing when you were just throwing money around?
2: Mine was travel. So I would literally hop on a plane when I got I and just go wherever I wanted. And my last trip before I was diagnosed was to China in 1995. And there weren't a lot of people hopping on the plane and going to China. Yeah. So manic spending is no different than the hypersexuality or anything that comes with mania. No frontal lobe, no ability to say you can't afford that. All of that's gone.
1: Is it just because you're like, I'm going to fuck it. I want to live in the moment?
2: There's no thought. That's yeah. an actual thought. Yeah. So you right there just had a stable thought, which is, you know, screw it. I'm going to live in the moment. I'm just going to do it. What's, you know, let's just live life. I'll pay for it later. That's a rational thought. We don't even have that thought when we're manic. Mm-hmm. So we have the desire to go on a cruise and we just get online and buy the ticket. Mm-hmm. There's not a, I wonder, you know, what it, what it's going to be like and where I should go. And maybe I should wait a couple weeks and mm-hmm. maybe go with a friend. It is thought action when you're manic. So I see something I like, I buy. I've heard
1: a lot about the hypersexuality, but you don't hear as much about the spending. Mm
2: -hmm. Everybody with mania has problems with anything that require frontal lobe thinking. Right. So gambling, spending, sex, drugs and alcohol, Mm -hmm. travel, work trying to like not piss people off it's all gone when you're manic
1: of course and if you can't work for months at a time because you're depressed it's not rational there's like nothing you can do even if you know you're running out of money even if you know you know that you need to work it's like you you just can't and especially like with pan like I have a lot of panic and like especially with panic disorder too you just panic attack yeah like you just you're like I think that people think it's just like I'm sad but you're like in physical pain as well
2: I lived that for many years, and I remember one day I was like, I have to find a way to work. Yeah. I have to find a way to work. So I spent quite a few years figuring it out, and that's when I wrote the book, Get It Done When You're Depressed. We can work when we're depressed. It just doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. So that secret that I learned myself that I teach everybody is if you wait for motivation to show up when you're depressed, it will never show up. If you wait to feel good about what you're doing when you're depressed, it will never happen. But if you just put one foot forward, I always call it like think like an athlete, and you put yourself out there and you do the work while you're in pain, Mm -hmm. while you think you can't work, would you believe that you cannot tell the difference between the work you do when you're depressed and when you're stable? Because depression (laughs) doesn't really affect our ability to work. It affects our ability to believe we can work. Yeah. Really big difference. So we can work when we're depressed, though there's some depression, catatonic depression, that's so serious it requires Serious medications, hospitalization. Yeah, but I lived with a thirty degree depression, thirty year depressive disorder that where I was depressed for thirty years, and I did teach myself to work. It's never easy though. No, it's never it hurts,
1: easy. and like, and also like changing medications and stuff. I've had a lot of issues with switching meds, and then there's three days where you feel like you're gonna throw up every time you stand, but you still got to go in and do the to the day job, you still and like, gotta go in. still got to go in, and like. It's just rough. It's like a thing that I really wanted to talk about on the show because I feel like all, you wake up from this mania of spending all this money and then you're dep- you're, you feel bad about what you did when you were manic, you know?
2: I was reading a lot about your work, Gabby, and you have very much. It's interesting. So now for you to tell me that you have bipolar because you've had a very bipolar career. Yeah. If you look at your work, your output, your ability, how incredibly creative you are, I call those of us with bipolar autodidactic polymaths. Hmm. We teach ourselves everything. That's autodidactic. We love to learn. And we're polymaths. We know a lot about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And we'll jump. Here's this, and I worked here, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And that's what makes us so different and amazing and creative. And once we learn to balance that meaning and that depression, we can keep that sort of Leonardo da Vinci quality about ourselves so as you get older, I'm here to tell you that it gets better. <laughs> as your management catches up with your symptoms, you're going to be able to handle and really, really reach your dreams with your work to the point, which you're already doing, of course. Thank
1: you. Um, I've also no like, question. realized a lot that you kind of have this idea that you can just like do all this stuff. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the Peace Corps. I'm going to do this when I was younger. And now I'm just like, it's cool to sleep. Like sleep is cool. It's, oh, I love it. It's cool to sleep. Because <laughs> well, you can't, the, I think there's this romanticization of mental illness where it's like you're, you're tired and you're hungry and you're making your best art. And it's like, you know, this whole thing that people no. say like Hemingway would starve himself and then go to the Louvre. And it's like, no, you, I like tend to do
2: my better work when I can like think. Well, and let's not forget how Hemingway died, how Rothko died, killed how themselves. Vincent Dango died. Yeah. They killed themselves. Yeah. So I don't want to kill myself. I've come close and I don't want to do it. Yeah. And the only way, number one, is sleep. You are so right about that. <laughs> so I used to have a radio show, Gabby, and I had to stop it. I couldn't handle the panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I simply couldn't. So now podcasts have come. Think about it. Instead of having to go to a big radio station and a big studio, look how you have modified your talents so that you can sleep. Maybe you want to be on Saturday Night Live. I know you had your chocolate cake company that you worked on. and <laughs> My college sketch group. Huh? Your sketch group, yeah. right? Because we really can't live that college sketch or that Saturday Night Live life. Yeah. We do better during the day because our circadian rhythms are all that matter. We really can't be night owls. It doesn't work for us very well. But look at the success people with bipolar have when they learn to manage the illness. Because then our intellectual abilities can come out, our artistic abilities. And by the way, people with bipolar don't tend to be more creative than other people. That's usually mania. Right. But we are more interested in learning, going to school and working than any group of people I've ever met.
1: Yeah. You just have to like take care of yourself. And, and there's this also this romanticization of working yourself to death. Like you have to have a side hustle and you have to be working all the time and you have to be working at night and blah, blah, blah. And like, it'll kill us. Yeah, exactly. But there's this like thing of like you have to be working the hardest. But people mm-hmm. with mental illness feel probably feel guilty that they can't. But also mm-hmm. like, this is just like has become this twisted thing that shouldn't have even started to begin with. Mm-hmm. I used to get so down and think how unfair it was that other people seem to be able to just do these things, and that it is. But isn't it? Un- it is unfair. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> I am I'm justified.
2: Sorry. <laughs> Most because a lot of most I like to have a lot of stable friends around me. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I have friends who are working in jobs that I would love. They're flying around the world. Mm -hmm. They're working with athletes, which is what I'd like to do. Oh, my God. They're having the greatest time of their lives. If I did it, I would die. Right. Yeah. I can't do it. So, oh, it took years for me to just finally go. All right. I can work part time. If I work more than part time, I cry almost every day and I can't sleep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, trade off. If you are someone who kind of recognizes these symptoms in yourself, or even if you're recognizing these symptoms in someone else, um,
2: what can you do? I wrote a book called Take Charge of Bipolar Disorder, and I had to, I came up with a four-step plan for managing this illness. And one of the things I wrote about was you've got to have a healthcare team around you if you have bipolar. And for many people, that's a prescriber. Whether you're taking meds or not, a lot of us go on and off meds. A lot of us have to stay on meds. Gabby, it sounds like you've had experience with this. And so we've got to have a good prescriber. A therapist whom we can talk to. Now, therapy is not a great treatment for bipolar at all, but a therapist who understands the, I almost said trauma, let's say drama of living with a mental illness profoundly helps. A support group, there's your healthcare side, right? Mm-hmm. Then I have a family, friends, and other professionals around me. So, for example, my nephew is 15. I started teaching him about bipolar when he was four. Mm-hmm. We now have a podcast together, Julie and David Talk Bipolar. He knows what mania looks like. So his clue is, Auntie Wee, he used to call me Auntie Wee, now Julie, you're talking really fast. That's when he sees signs of mania. That's his way of telling me to slow down, that my mania has showed up, and that I either need to take my lithium, or I need to go get some help. So that's his clue. Mm -hmm. My mom knows that she can say, Julie... You're walking pretty fast and talking a little too fast for me, and I noticed you were up. You were texting. You texted me at 1.30 last night. Right. She's allowed to do that. I've given her that. And so I then have to go, darn, I'm manic. I hate it so much. I'm manic. All of my friends are allowed to tell me that I'm manic. So I was just with my friend Karen the other day, and she'll go, you piss me off so much when you're manic. You're so annoying. But she'll tell me. She'll go, Julie, you're trying to drink out of my drink, and you're being sort of annoying. Mm -hmm. Then I know... So it's not about hiring somebody per se. It's about being open, giving them a list of your symptoms and saying, help me manage this. Children are fabulous at this as long as you don't scare them and you tell them you're not responsible for me, but you can help me. Mm -hmm. Family. And then stay away from people who feed your mania. That's a really big one because Party Julie is a lot more fun than... I leave karaoke at 11. Yeah. So I have to have friends who are okay. My friends will stay out till 2. We did it last weekend. I'm out the door by 10.30. Mm-hmm. And my friends keep partying the rest of the night. Not me. I know. Because I have bipolar. They never bother me about it. So that's the team. And it's taken years and it saves my life. And then Facebook, hugely important for a lot of people. Why? Facebook or younger, Instagram. Because you can get on there and you can say, I'm I'm seeing signs of depression. And I know that I when I have when I'm depressed that I'm not thinking straight, help me think straight. And people write will write in and they'll say, That's right. Remember, depression lies. Mm -hmm. Have you called a hotline? What do you need to do? So if you have a group of people who understand mental illness online, they can greatly help you.
1: Yeah, you have to it's almost like you have to get ahead of yourself. Like you have to You have
2: to do this when you're well. Yeah. Yeah. You have
1: to get out ahead in front of yourself. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I love how you say that.
1: Hide yourself from yourself.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. A friend of mine, um, two friends, Martin Baker and Fran Houston, wrote a really important book called High Tide, Low Tide, The Caring Friends Guide to Bipolar. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's so important is for the majority of us, it's really our friends who need to help us. Not all of us are near our family, and we don't have access to healthcare all the time. So if friends can learn to say, Here's what you need to do when you're depressed, anxious, manic. They can really make a difference.
1: After the break, we'll meet my dad's friend, Wade Bursler, who I think a lot of you will be able to empathize with. He's someone who's been smacked down again and again by the financial system and every system, but refuses to give up. Stay tuned. So when I started talking to my dad's friend, Wade, who's been through some pretty extreme stuff in his life, I wasn't sure how much I'd be able to relate to his experiences.
5: I snorted cocaine off the blade edge of a Bowie knife in a stairwell of an empty tenement in Harlem at 2 o'clock in the morning with me wearing a suit and a tie. I've seen a lot of stuff.
1: But when it comes to money, Wade's financial struggles aren't much weirder than situations a lot of us have been through.
5: You know, when I was thinking of your show, it's bad with money. I've always been bad with money. My ex-wife's great aunt one year um, at Christmas time gave us all $3,000, she was very wealthy, and she gave us all $3,000 checks. And I'm sure she was, her husband was a stockbroker at one time, and I'm sure they were looking to invest in the future, get ready to buy a house. And I took my check, and I bought season tickets for the Mets. The other anecdote I wanted to tell you was, I had a 1980 Corvette when I got engaged to her. And she said, if you want to marry me, you're going to have to sell that car. Well, you know, I mean, I love that car more than life itself. But, you know, I wanted to get married, so I sold the car. bawling, bawling like a four-year-old as it drove down the street. And um, we got married, and everything was okay. And seven months after she left me, I won a bunch of money in the lottery in New Jersey. And I flew to Florida and bought another Corvette. <laughs> it was just like, could have invested that, too. But, no, I'm going to have another Corvette.
1: For Wade, it's the demons of substance abuse and addiction that took someone who might have just been a little bit bad with money, like the rest of us, and left him, well, the theme of this episode, fucked.
5: I'm a convicted felon, drug addict, alcoholic, amputee, single dad who was fired from McDonald's in 42, and now I have a PhD.
1: (laughs) Is that what you were looking for? That is what I was looking for, yeah. Um, So you're a friend of my dad's. Yes, I am. And my dad sent me uh, this thing that you had written on your blog about um, starting to work for Lyft. Can Can you talk a little bit about why you posted that and also, like, what it said?
5: There are certain circumstances that occurred that put me in this position, and my wife, she's unable to work. She had a stroke four years ago. I was finishing my Ph.D., and I sent out 20 applications to different people, particularly Wounded Warrior Project, who I thought 32 years as an amputee and a PhD in adult and community educational leadership would be a perfect fit for that. And uh, I got nothing. I got crickets. So Mm -hmm. I had a research consultant job with Nova Southeastern University, and the grant dried up. And the following month, they stopped my disability due to a clerical error, and I haven't received a disability check, even though my leg is still missing, just to clarify for whoever's listening to this. <laughs> and uh, I haven't received a disability check since July. I've been living off the gracious generosity of other people, and I had 6,000 miles to burn on my lease, and I thought, okay, I'll drive for Lyft. We need to have an income. We need to eat.
1: So the convicted felon part, what, what is that?
5: Oh, that's 1978, 79. Uh, That was a drug trafficking charge. And I was guilty. I sold to a narc and then the floodgates opened. Uh, But yet, uh, that was the very first thing that I was caught doing. It's not that I didn't do other illegal things at that time. I just happened to get caught doing that one.
1: So, okay, so when were you, how old were you when you got charged with the the felony? Twenty-one. So what does that mean, like, career-wise? Because you talk about in this post that, that you didn't pass the FBI background checks. So just for people who don't know, like, what does that mean when you are a convicted felon?
5: Oh, okay. <laughs> you know those things that your parents say, hey, this will be on your permanent record and follow you around for the rest of your life? Okay, they weren't kidding. It's true. Um, it follows you around for a large portion of it, that's for sure. I found that out. I was in my second year of junior college and i decided that i was going to get a bachelor's degree and teach high school so i had a setup with a local high school down here that i was going to audit a history class because i want to be a history teacher and i went to the board of education and they called me back and said that uh, i couldn't pass the fbi background check and i said so let me see if i have this correct i've umpired and coached baseball to these kids for 10 years And I've been vice president of their middle school PTA. And now I'm vice president of their baseball booster club. But I can't sit in a classroom and observe them for something that I did 27 years ago. And they said, yes, that's right.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. So it kind of, these types of things sort of follow you around forever in in, in terms of like looking for jobs, right? I mean, that's the main thing. Yes. So do you feel... Like that you are the same person that you were back then? Like, do you feel that it's keeping you from, it's something, one of the things at least that keeps you from like moving forward with the rest of your life?
5: I, th- I think that uh, my posts on social media or blogs I've written may be a deterrent, you know, but I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, but you are very open about it. Like a lot of people wouldn't put on a blog that they have a felony conviction, you know?
5: I'm an open book who am i going to help who can am i going to inspire unless i tell them the elevator version in the amount of time allotted so the more open i am the more people can see see i can do it this guy did it i can do it
1: a lot of the financial advice that people give on this show comes from a very like privileged place and they don't they're not thinking about anyone that has like extreme circumstances kind of And I think you are someone that has a a bunch of boxes ticked. Can you talk about the motorcycle accident?
5: I was going to acting school at the time in New York. And like any good self-respecting actor, I was waiting tables in Tending Bar. And the place that I was waiting tables this one night, I got tanked and I was on my way home on my motorcycle. And it's kind of a curse. All the times that I've been drunk, I bet you I can count on one hand how many times I blacked out. And this night happened to be one of those times. So about 2:30 in the morning, I made the left-hand turn to go home and I hit a telephone pole. And I thought, "Oh my God, I got to get out of here." My bike was still running, and uh, I went to move myself up on my elbows, and my ulna came through my motorcycle jacket. And so I tried to squirm a little bit, and I couldn't move below the waist, and I thought, "Oh, I'm paralyzed. What a drag!" And so I started screaming, help me, I'm dying. And a guy came out of his house and said, everybody's coming. And he meant everybody. The police were coming. The paramedics were coming. Fire department. So everybody showed up. And uh, the police wanted to give me a breathalyzer to see if I had been drinking, take blood from me. And the paramedic said, don't bother. He's going to bleed to death. And I heard that. So they went to load me in the back of the meat wagon. And even the driver called me in as a DOA. So we had a DOA coming into Dover General Hospital. And I said, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Don't I have any say in this? And they said, you got to stay awake. But I didn't know the extent of my injuries. I just thought I was paralyzed and I saw the broken arm. I didn't know all the other stuff. And my ex-wife was six months pregnant with my son at the time. And uh, she beat me to the hospital. And they wheeled me in the emergency room. And we had just gotten back from vacation. So we were like really healthy looking and tan. (laughs) <laughs> and she was as white as the sheet that was covering me, and uh, I was supposed to be in the hospital. This was October fourth, nineteen eighty four, and I was supposed to be in the hospital through the first of the year and not walking without assistance until the following August. And I was out of the hospital in twenty seven days, and I was playing golf in April.
1: Like what ended up happening? They they took your leg.
5: Yeah, uh, yeah. They come. Well, it was pretty much torn off. Like my fe- my both my femurs. My left one came through the front of my pants the right one came out the back. I think it was my tibia and my fibula both came up through the front of my sock and they uh, had to remove my left leg cuz it was just too mangled. There was only one artery going into my foot. And my ex-wife made that decision and it was the best one that she probably made in our years of marriage.
1: So you're a PhD and you're you're a history buff, right? Those are the two. And sports history I have in my I have
5: my masters in American history and yes, I'm a baseball historian as well.
1: When did you get sober?
5: Uh, June twenty fifth, two
1: thousand. So you 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 get um, sober and you you know start doing right to get over this addiction or to you know to go on the right path, quote unquote, let's say, and then you you go into higher education and you keep getting degrees. Oh no no
5: no no! I it it was out of boredom. (laughs) I had uh, (laughs) I really became one of those people who was unemployable. Like, the job I had after McDonald's, I couldn't handle McDonald's. I mean, I was drunk all the time. I couldn't figure out the cash register, and uh, eventually I had to leave. And so when I got married a second time in 98, one of my friends was the counsel for a company that sold used printer and copier parts, and my job was to open up the boxes when these parts came in, take them out of the box, break the boxes down and throw them in the garbage and I was fired from that. I couldn't throw boxes in the garbage right. I couldn't figure out how to make them flat. And then I'd go out and I'd get drunk at lunch and I'd pass out in my car. So I was really unemployable. So I got sober and money was awful then too, just as bad as it is now, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? If I'm sober 17 years, you'd think I made a little progress. But uh, uh, a friend of mine who was also in a in a program, gave me a job. And while I was there, I met a, another guy who said, how come you've never collected disability? And I said, I don't want to be a burden to the government. And he goes, you paid into it. He goes, it's your money. And he said, nobody wants to trade places with you for 1200 bucks in a really great place to park at Christmas. So I applied for it, and I got it. And it was during George Bush's administration. So think of that, you know, normally that they really tighten the purse strings and you have to go through appeals. And I didn't, I got it right away. And uh, the same guy said to me, how come, uh, what are you going to do now with your free time now that you have a little money coming in? I said, I don't know. And he said, why don't you uh, go to college? And uh, I think I laughed so hard, I may have pulled a muscle in my rib cage. When I got out of high school, I went to a junior college that was local. My mother worked there, and I really fell into drugs really heavy, and I started flunking everything. And I got a job, and I was working at that, and when I wasn't working, I was getting high on something. And so I, uh, I flunked out of a whole bunch of stuff. And then there was another time where I lost a bunch of money gambling, and I didn't want them to find me, so I, I left campus for a while. My GPA from that school that I transferred in was 1.16. So I wasn't really enthusiastic about trying this school thing. And then when I do wind up going, um, you know, like people made fun of how old I was. They made fun of my leg missing. They made fun of how bad I was doing in class because I got three C's and a B the first semester. And I wanted to quit. And my wife said, what are you going to do if you quit? I said, I don't know. She she said, try it one more semester. And I got an A in a history class. And I said, oh, I think I can do this. I was just learning the process, you know. I'd never learned it. I never did homework when I was in high school. I never learned the process of learning.
1: Who was making fun of you?
5: The other students. What? Yeah. It was really pretty wild.
1: Okay, so... Was the idea that maybe when you had all these degrees, like, the job market might be better?
5: It wasn't all these degrees. There were different stages. I thought, okay, I'm going to get a bachelor's, and I'm going to teach high school. And we've already been over that on why that didn't pan out. So I'll show them. I'll get a master's degree and go back to Broward College and teach junior college because one of my professors was the head of the hiring committee. And he said, when your master's is done, I'll be glad to hire you back here to teach history. And that didn't work out so well either. And so when I went to finish my master's, I spoke at a prison. And there were about 120, 130 guys there. And I got a standing ovation. It was about four days before I graduated. And I'm walking out, and the prison guard says, I've been working here seven years, and they've never stood up for anyone. And I turned to my friend who brought me into this institution and I said, I know what I'm going to do for a living. And so I formed a company to do motivational, inspirational speaking to at-risk populations.
1: I think a lot of people feel like, "Oh, some one kind of discouraging thing happens and they get real down. And you kind of seem like a person who just kind of like is like keeps moving or keeps doing the thing or keeps like... Like you finished your degrees and a lot of people who do have better circumstances wouldn't. Have. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yes. So that's what I'm saying is that like you've you've done some stuff wrong. You've also done some stuff right. That's life. That's everybody. Um, it's just like very interesting that you kind of have this like get hit, get back up, get hit, get back up kind of thing.
5: Sometimes I'm woozy for a couple of days. <laughs> you know, I have I've I have my moments where I just, man, I'm tired. I can't keep doing this. Yeah. I can't keep getting turned down. I can't keep fighting day after day after day to make $50 on Lyft so I can keep the power on at the house.
1: A lot of financial advice I don't think applies to you. For example, like if you're reading a book and the advice is like, just don't buy your coffee every morning. Like, I feel like a, someone like you would justifiably be able to be like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
5: Yeah. Just don't buy. I've been eating noodle ramen and cheese sandwiches for about two months.
1: Right. It's a
5: big deal when my wife and I order Chinese food because for $18, we can divvy it in half. And so we can eat for two nights. So that means it's only four fifty a night for each one of us.
1: So there's this like falsehood that it, I think is affecting a lot of young people, too, which is like if you go to school or you do these things correctly, then everything will work out. Can you talk about like why you filed for bankruptcy after getting a master's, which seems sort of antithetical to like this idea that's like, oh, well, the American dream is going to school and then you'll be fine. You know,
5: the filing for bankruptcy part. I mean, I took the last of my three thousand dollars to put together these media packs. And I sent it out to every athletic director of every Division One school in the United States and every head football coach and basketball coach. With endorsement letters from the ex-lieutenant governor, president of our university, Frank Brogan, who's now the chancellor or was the chancellor of the Virginia University System, Howard Schnellenberger, who's in the College Football Hall of Fame, and two of my professors. And uh, no one, no one called And so if we used up all our money and I applied to Broward, like I was told, and they didn't want me and Miami-Dade didn't want me. And uh, I think I have a message to tell people. I'm not Tony Robbins, you know, six foot seven with perfect teeth and all that. But if you can't be inspired by what I have to say, well, then uh, then your heart's not beating. So when I went back for my Ph.D., it was to get the credential. Yeah. It was to become Dr. Wade Bursler. Are you kidding me, Dr. Wade Bursler?
1: (laughs) So, did filing for bankruptcy help?
5: Well, yeah. I mean, now we get to start from scratch. It's ruined our credit, but that's not the first time for me my credit's been ruined. After I got divorced the first time and, you know, my credit was bad, I moved to Florida with 100 bucks in my pocket, a kid, and no car, and went, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? Financial discomfort has been part of my life. You ever see that cartoon... Where the it's a cartoon animal and he's running down a hill, and his legs are going so fast they look like pinwheels or bicycle wheels. Yeah, and yeah. Just before he falls on the fa- on his face at the very last second, he catches himself and he just pulls his head back and he keeps on running downhill. That was my life for twenty five years.
1: I think that this is a more relatable situation. Like I think. I think there are a lot of people who it just is so out of your control. You know, like there things yes. that keep happening are not like are not entirely. There's just not any kind of redemption stuff like in terms of government programs or, or any or like foundations or anything like that. Like there's not a lot like it's almost like, well, they fucked up, you know, 30 years ago. So fuck them.
5: Hey, when they took away my disability um, for a couple of weeks while I was still getting my Ph.D., I wrote the White House, and uh, Barack Obama, I know, it was a form letter probably written by an aide, but I did get a response, and you're only allowed 2,400 characters to state your case, and after I got the letter back, two of the professors on my floor I go, well, that officially makes you the best grant writer here,
4: <laughs>
5: and I got it restored. I got it re- restored in two weeks, and now this time they took it, and they're not backing down, but the... The evaluation, which is see again out of my control, that I told the guy that my research job with Nova is ending in June. This is it. That'll be my last check, and uh, he writes on the report, "This isn't losing his disability isn't going to cause any economic hardship." So you're talking a thousand a month from my research job, and then fourteen hundred from disability. You're taking twenty-four hundred away from a $3,500 a month household total income. How is that not going to cause economic hardship? Even if we didn't pay the mortgage or either car, we yeah. can't live.
1: So how do you think that uh, addiction played into, like, the a lot of times, Oh,
5: everything's like, spontaneous.
1: I know, and a lot of times I think with my dad, I feel like, uh, like he was— Uh, like a, a kid. And then he started with his addiction and then he was nothing for like, I mean, he was existing and he had us and he married my mom and all that stuff, but he was like, not really a thing for like 40 years. And then when he got sober, all of a sudden he was like, what do I want my job to be? Almost like a teenager again. Does that make sense? Yes. So like, do you feel like that as well? Like you're starting super late because there was just like a blink and a blackout for like 40 years.
5: I'm going to get a little choked up here. Um, I found out today, like, my son's in the hospital. Why? And he's got diverticulitis. My son gave me purpose. I never felt like that. No matter what happened, I was there for him. I did homework for him every night, throes of addiction, drunkenness. I never missed a parent-teacher conference. I never missed a baseball game he ever played. I coached him nothing so I always felt like I had a purpose I was very willing to work at whatever shit job came down the bike as long as I get to spend time with him and that's all that mattered I quit a job one time because they wouldn't let me go be at his field day at his elementary school and so I quit so I could be there I may not have been the wisest move when you're broke but he needed me and he asked me to be there and he called me crying said I promised well then damn it I'm gonna be there Right. And I've been like that my whole life with him.
1: I don't think that a lot of these people who are giving advice have met actual people or had the life experience that I know that you've had.
5: God, I was in the car business for 10 years, tended bar, acted. Um, I was a computer operator back when computers were as big as gymnasiums. You know, I have other things that I've done, but that's not what I want to do. I want to talk to people. I want to tell them it's going to be all right that no matter how bad they think it's going to be it could be worse and i'm going to tell and i want to tell them it'll be okay and i want to be able to laugh about it and let them know that if they look back on it you're still accomplishing things by putting one foot in front of the other and keep breathing in and out because you never know who's going to call don't be, don't think you're a victim don't think all the bad shit that's happening to you is falling out of the sky and landing on you alone you need to be in the game And I think I'm in the game.
1: So the first three people we talked to, Manjula, Julie and Catherine, they're really great resources. And you can contact them. You can get in touch with them to talk. Julie especially is like super into talking to people about mental health. And she even reached out to me after our interview wanting to talk to me. Um, And Manjula is very available. Uh, And that's great. They're great resources. And you should talk to them if you can Or read their work if you can um, But I wanted to close with uh, with Wade Because he is someone who I think a lot of you can relate to In the sense that it seems hopeless But Wade, in all my time of knowing him Kind of always has hope And that's something you should take away from him
5: Man. I'm getting cremated, but if I was being put in the ground, that's the one word I would want on my headstone. He was inspiring. Eighteen years ago, I couldn't send my name, and now I'm a doctor. You know, I've been kicked a lot of times, and, uh, and I keep coming back for more. You know, the Rocky adage, why do you think movies are so prevalent? TV shows with the same theme. Don't give up. Keep plugging. Something good will happen. And if it doesn't, Maybe I was the good that happened to somebody else. You know, maybe it won't happen to me, but maybe it's happened for me for others by being who I am.
1: Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes, and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who should be fucked by virtue of irresponsibly manipulating the housing market, but received a golden parachute instead and haven't paid any penalty whatsoever. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Afim Shapiro. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwood, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week for our finale.